Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Tweaked Audio. Do you need some new earbuds? Do you need some new headphones? Go to tweakedaudio.com and enter the promo code other people, O T H E R P P L. Get 33% off of any purchase at tweakedaudio.com when you enter the promo code other people. Get some earbuds, get some headphones. They come in different shapes, different sizes, different styles, different colors. Tweakedaudio.com. These are earbuds, these are headphones. You can listen to things with them. Go and get some. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is entirely optional. This is probably a reflection of late capitalist decline. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles, California. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, as always, got a good show for you today. Adrian Todd Zaniga, creator and host of Literary Deathmatch, is my guest. Uh, the Literary Deathmatch is an international uh, live event. How do I describe it? It's a reading series. It's happened in more than 50 cities all over the planet, possibly more than that. Uh, it's a comedy show. It's funny. It's competitive. There are judges. There are writers reading from their work. The judges are judging them. The judges are funny. Todd, uh, or I guess I should say Adrian Todd, is the master of ceremonies. He's a showman. He always seems to be wearing a suit. Yeah, you guys have been to the Literary Deathmatch, correct? If not, uh, you can check it out, and you can learn more over at literarydeathmatch.com. Uh, and here I should mention that I myself will be appearing at the Literary Deathmatch here in Los Angeles, California, on Friday, April 1st. Uh, that is April Fool's Day. This is not an April Fool's Day joke. I will be appearing at the Literary Death Match at the Ace Hotel Theater downtown on uh, April 1st. That is during uh, AWP, the annual Writers' Conference, which, of course, is here in L.A. this year. I will be on stage uh, at Literary Death Match with Melissa Broder, poet and author of the brand-new essay collection, So Sad Today, which is out there from Grand Central Press. Melissa... Uh, is also, uh, you know, many of you might know this, but she's the creator of the So Sad Today Twitter account. Very popular and uh, demonstrates a special kind of dark genius. Not to mention uh, strangely obsessive tweeting habits. 
and uh, she and I are going to be on stage for a few minutes during the literary death match. I will be talking with Melissa. I'll be interviewing her in front of people. So if you've ever thought to yourself, uh, you know, boy, I'd really love to see Brad interview uh, somebody in public. This is your chance. I've never done it before. I've never interviewed somebody in public before. Actually, I, you know what? I have. I interviewed uh, Chuck Palahniuk years ago, but it was it was pre-podcast. I was at Largo. I was very nervous. I think I'll be less nervous now. Though who's you know who knows? I could choke up there. It's part of the drama. I could freeze up. Who knows what's going to happen? Maybe you should show up just to see. You could heckle me. Uh, if you want to go to the uh, go to the literary death match in L.A. during AWP, you better get your tickets today. They're going fast. The Ace Hotel Theater uh, is a great space, and there's going to be a party afterwards. Should be a good time. For more info, go to literarydeathmatch.com. Uh, quick reminder, just some basics here. The podcast, this podcast, the Other People podcast is available for free over at iTunes. It's also available via Stitcher. Uh, you can listen online at otherpeople.com, otherppl.com, the show's official website. And of course, the best way to listen to this program is via the Other People app, the free Other People app available in, uh, in the App Store for your iPhone or uh, over at Amazon for your Android device. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So, uh, Adrian Todd Zaniga. Or should I say Todd Zaniga? Or should I say A.T. Zaniga? He lives here in Los Angeles. Uh, he came over here. He sat down across from me and, and uh, we had a conversation. And I think that I got a conversation out of him that you haven't heard before. You know, many of you guys know him or have seen him on stage uh, at his events around the country, but you probably don't know a ton about him, where he's from, how he grew up, how the literary death match came to be, and so on and so forth. And so hopefully this episode will shed a bit of light. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Adrian Todd Zaniga. My full name is Adrian Todd Zaniga. Okay, given and name. Given name. All right. Um, my father liked that name because my mother and they wanted to call me Todd. 
And my father was like, no, we need a more regal name or something. I don't know what he thought, actually. I, I need to ask him about that. But his idea was it was A2Z. So A, T-O of Todd, and then Z. Gotcha. And I was the last of eight children. So that was like his joke that I honestly believe he didn't know when it happened. But fair <laughs> enough. Like revisionist uh, history. Revisionist history, yeah. And then um, when I was 19, I went by Adrian for a calendar year. You're in university, you know? Instead of doing drugs, I was like, I got an idea. <laughs> and a funny thing happened. One of my best friends, I was at a party, and there was this girl I was talking to, and my friend came up, and he goes, this is Adrian. He's a poet. <laughs> and he was trying to be a dick, and she was like, oh. And he was like, oh, my God, this is the worst, and stormed off. One of my favorite moments. Anyway, uh, I went back to Todd because I just knew it. Uh, my father is the only person that's ever called me Adrian my entire life. So when people call me Adrian, I turn. You know, I look. And so at 27, uh, I'd been running Opium Magazine, and I was like, you know, I really don't like the name Todd. Todd is the name of every dickhead in every 80s film. My name's Brad. Oh, right. You've yeah. got the worst. We're the worst named. If it ends with a D and it's four letters and you're a dude, it's just, I don't know. That's a theory I just came up with and probably not very good. One. Chad. Chad. Yeah. So, yeah. It's so far, so good. And that's the only three names that are like that. Uh, so when, uh, when I was 27, I was like, you know what? I really hate being called Todd. But I'm too famous. I'm too well known. Like I run this literary magazine. I, you know, all these people know me, so I can't change it. And then when I was 37, I was like, you know, 5,000 Facebook friends, all this, whatever I've done for literary deathmatch for, I guess at that point, seven years. I was like, nobody knows me. Nobody, nobody knows me at all. Like there's a very light knowing. Your Q score there. is low. My Q point. score is ultimately like at zero effectively. Yeah. You know, I'd done this event. I, you know, I hadn't had a book published, which was the one thing that I was like, oh, well, okay, we can. So I was just like, I wrote this article for a magazine about it and just said, you know, nobody knows me. What's the difference? You know, so I was just like, oh, okay. And then. Um, this is my given name. This is my given name. And it came out of the fact that I was in Ljubljana <laughs> in Slovenia. And right after that, I was in Oslo, Norway. And in, in Norway, a lot of my friends, uh, uh, like, Sofia Lis or Lisa Andrine or, you know, like all these names are two names and they go by both. So I was like, all right, I've got it. In in Slovenia, I talked to this girl and she's like, Todd is a terrible name. She's a jerk, but she's a, <laughs> she's a really interesting jerk. But uh, so, so she said this and I was like, you know what? You're right. I'm done with this. I'm just going to. And I and something fascinated me about the idea that I could go online and this is sort of like. This is my joke structure in my brain, but I could go online and within 22 hours, I'd be a totally different person. Change be, your name. Just change your name. You know, update my Facebook, change my email. Like, you know, nobody had Adrian Todd Zuniga, if you it's can It's a rebranding. Yeah. It was interesting. How and did people respond? I, the only thing that happened that was super weird was I was at a party like two days later and I was talking to a girl and this guy came up and he's like, oh, you've met Todd. And she goes, you said your name was Adrian. I go, well, I just changed it and it, you know, it's actually my, and she was like, oh my God, you're such an asshole. I was like, wow, I don't know what's happening for you, but I'm happy to talk with you about it. And she, she turned and walked off and it wasn't like we had just started talking. So it wasn't like we're in this deep conversation in which I was promising her to take her to Spain or anything. I don't know. It was very strange. And then, uh. And then that was like the only huge negative. And then a lot of people were like, I'm just going to call you Todd. And for for the first three months, it was strange because I was like, what am I going to do? It sounds weird if it sometimes it sounds weird when you call me Todd, or Adrian, you know, I'm like, oh, 
I guess you're that. I got to call you Todd because that's just what, how I first met you. Right, exactly. And I so I decided after three months, I was like, okay, you're grandfathered in. So there's a huge group of people that call me Todrian. There's, you know, like, <laughs> which I thought was funny. This uh, is very fucking complicated. It's very complicated. And yeah. now, now if anybody I know calls me Todd, I don't say anything about it. Okay. And so. You've got I, three names. Any one works. Exactly. But I always introduce myself as Adrian. So my friend, like if you were to introduce me at a party and you're just like, you know, you're just not thinking about it and you're like, hey, this is Todd. I'll be like, hello, I'm Adrian. And I, it's kind of funny because almost nobody notices because nobody hears a name at a party anyway. Right. But that is how I sort of deal with it. And, and now, you know, to be honest, call me Todd. It does sound super weird when people I've known my whole life or my girlfriend calls me Adrian sometimes because I'm like, but you know me. <laughs> right. You know me. So why are you like, I would prefer my girlfriend to call me just any, just like a pet name. Well, yeah. Why don't you give, why don't you guys develop a pet name? I'm going to talk to her about that. She yeah. has one. Pookie. Eh, Something. It's, it's pretty adorable. <laughs> it's pretty adorable. So what's your ethnicity? What uh, is Zaniga? So, uh, my last name should have been Arnold, but my father was adopted. And because we're on this podcast, I'm just going to tell the truth. Uh, I always tell people it's Basque from Spain. To be honest, I'm not sure. My parents, uh, or my dad's parents were, uh, biological parents, by the biological parents were Arnold or his father last name was Arnold, but then he was adopted by, uh, these people that aren't my favorite people. And, uh, and their last name is Zaniga. And that was a Mexican Zaniga. But to me, narratively, I was like saying it's Basque and Spanish just sounds cooler. And I always thought when I was growing up, I couldn't wait to change my last name to Stearns, T.S. Eliot, the S. And as my pin name. And then I, I got to a certain age and I was like, nah, this is mine. Yeah, but like, that's the thing. About, I, had, I went through that too. I think everybody kind of uh, who wants to be a writer, who entertains literary ambitions at some point considers a pen name. But then it's like, uh, yeah, it's, it's like dumb. if the writing sucks, you could have the coolest name in the world. And if the writing is great, your name could be Chad or Brad. <laughs> yeah, apparently. <laughs> I think, I it's think. A, yeah. You know, good. but I guess like if the writing is like, above average and your name is like i don't know alexander mcqueen or something that sounds regal maybe that elevates the writing in people's minds somehow maybe i mean to me adrian todd zaniga is a hilarious name because adrian it sounds kind of like oh you're you're in possibly interesting it has like that alexander mcqueen vibe and then todd puts me smack dab where i'm from i was born in st louis it's just like nope you're not escaping this yeah and then zaniga is just like a flourish of possibly ethnic like i part of me wonders you know if i'll be marketed someday is like you have something of an ethnic look you have like the olive skin and that's a weird thing i'm french english irish and dutch so i always say that like i look like a dutch french weirdo yeah that's why i'm weird looking but and i didn't have the alcoholism of the british or the the irish lucky lucky break yeah lucked out so okay so born and raised in st louis uh born in st louis and then we moved to north carolina Mississippi, Alabama, Paris, Texas, uh, Paris, Tennessee. And then we, Cardiola, there's a Paris and Tennessee. It's Paris and Tennessee. Not to be confused with Paris, Texas. Not to be confused. <laughs> Very often confused with Paris, France though. You know, yes. so that's a, eight that's kids, a eight kids, last of eight. And how, what's the span? What's the, like how old uh, is the eldest? I'm 41 now. My sister is 61. And then my next oldest to me is five years older. Jesus. She's 46. So yeah, I so was, you're the caboose. I was the caboose. That's a big, that's a lot of kids. It's a, it's almost too many. One might say my, um, my mom had three children with her first husband. Uh, he died by putting a bullet in his head. And then her second husband was like the great love of her life. Um, I found out 
while crying my eyes out while my sister drove me like in the night we'd taken some road trip and my sister who is who's my biological sister was telling me this story about how that was my my mom's great love and i was and she told me the story it's a beautiful story and i was just like sitting next to her just bawling you know not because my mom didn't love my dad but because my mom didn't get that you know for whole it's like it's like uh bridges of madison county kind of thing yeah totally what uh, what happened to the second husband uh, he died of tuberculosis, which I don't, I don't know. Jesus. Consumption. Was it Doc Holliday? Yeah, it's crazy, right? Yeah. Uh, and it, there's an appearance by him in, in my book. I, I kind of tell my mom's story in second person in this, in this book. Yeah, I she figures finished. largely into your life. Like, I mean, I, I've known you for a while and I've seen Literary Deathmatch. You make a mention at the end of each show, like, you know, call your mom. She misses you. She misses you. Um, so, you know, she was a, a obviously a, a big presence in your childhood. Yeah, yeah. She's uh we were very very close. I was the baby and she treated me like the baby. Um and she's super protective like I just I feel like she was always standing up for me all through my life in different ways. Like there was this one time they tried to put me in a special school uh like not well, like like Forrest Gump. Yeah. They're like you're super smart, we want to bump you up a grade or you're oh. super smart, we want to put you in this math school. And each time they had like the teacher very kind, like in her mind was like, oh, I'm going to ask him. And one time I just started crying. And the other time I was like, oh, I don't know. And then I went home, told my mom. And the next day my mom like came into the school and she's like, what the hell are you doing? You know, like this boy, you know, her big thing was she didn't want me to be different because she, I don't know, I guess I was somewhat already different, but she, uh, she didn't want me to not be driving at the same time as everybody else or whatever. She was very protective of that idea. Um, so it was really nice. And and actually, the story of Call Your Mother, She Misses You, when I ran Opium Magazine, the submission process, um, we are a literary humor magazine, so there's like 10 beats on the submission process. And the 10th was just Call Your Mother, She Misses You. you know, like number two was don't have it over X amount of words. Number three was, you know, put your name on it, you know, whatever. And then and that 10th thing was just sort of this sweet way to bring my mom into it. And then uh, while she was effectively on her deathbed years later i was um I w- i'd flown from paris where i was living to st louis and i'm just getting right into it brad yeah please Let's do this and i'd flown there and i had to do these shows i'd booked these shows in uh new york and boston and somewhere else uh i can't in baltimore and i was with her and, and her health wasn't great and she it, by the time what was I, the problem Kidney, lung, and uh, heart failure—sort of all. If I guess if you have eight kids and yeah. you smoke for sixty-two years, oh my god, it's not great for you. That I'm gonna say, have eight kids. Just try not to smoke for sixty-two yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, she. Um, like I was reading her Samuel Beckett. It's a it's a weird thing. Uh, not not the right choice. But um, but then I had to go to do these shows. In my mind, I was like, well, I I said I would do them, so I have to do them, and this is what I do. And then the, f- it was such a weird thing. It was like a nine day passing and this was like on day four and I had to leave and I, I was like, this is not great. Uh, Meaning you had to leave your mother's side. I had to leave my mother's side and, but I, it, she seemed stable enough. Everything seemed like, okay. Like it was, it was like 60, 40 that she would make it at that point. And I flew to New York and it was, I did this show and it was, I was pretty great show. I can't remember who was in it. I should have checked, but, um, but I was standing there on stage while the judges were talking or while the readers were reading and just, I was like, I have to, I have to, this has to be part of the show. Like, this is all I'm thinking about is my mother laying there and like how much she means to me. And, 
And I kept thinking if I, if I mention it, it like the second beat where I would just talk about writers or whatever, if I mention it, I don't know what this story is. So I could go on for like minutes. That could spiral. Yeah, that could spiral. <laughs> and I was like, how do I do it? And I was like, oh, don't, don't even bring her up. Cause even if you like throw a little shout that way, like you're going to, you're going to talk about that. I'd know myself well enough. So I was like, oh, call your mother. She misses you. Just say that at the end of the show. And so after the show ended, I, you know, like I was so relieved that it was over and that it had succeeded and I hadn't flown off the rails and I said it and then I just dropped the mic. And from that point on, I said at the end of every show because of that. It's a nice touch. Yeah. I like it. And so, uh, did she like make it or like while you were on that? She's in the car waiting for me actually. No, (laughs) she died. But the thing is people, but I mean, did she die? What did you get to go back and see her? Yeah, it was really interesting. So the next day I did a show in Boston and then. Uh, or no, I'd done the show in Boston and then New York. And then I was supposed to go to Baltimore and I was like, fuck this. I cannot be, this is too huge risk. And there's a huge snowstorm oh. and I ended up getting the only flight back. And I was just like, what the, I gotta get back. I was like really losing it in Shia Scanlon's apartment. I was like, if I can't get back with the, you know, like <laughs> this is going to happen. And anyway, so I got back and then she passed, uh, I guess three or four days later. And it was, it was pretty, it was really interesting to see how like as one of eight children i was always like i don't, I don't want to say we were like cha- challenging one another for who the favorite was but in a way i was like i'd been the closest to her taking the best care of her i thought in, in her last years but it was really interesting to get everybody was there and to see how she loved us all equally which i was like that's amazing yeah and also like these guys have not been great lately <laughs> you know like that was that was sort of my mentality i was just like god come on I'm I'm right here. Pay more attention to me. And I was like, oh no no no, you're also old enough to be like, no, this is awesome. Like she she le- she legitimately just loved us. I thought that was so cool. That's a mother's love. My grandmother had nine children, and uh, you know, close to all of them, somehow made that work. I don't know how people who have that many kids run a household, and you know how how they all survive. <laughs> it's madness. Yeah. I mean, you've got just. A bunch of, for me as a kid, because I was the youngest, sort of like a dreamy weirdo, um, and I just, I just would see all these kids around, just like my older brothers and sisters, and they, like as I developed, I was just like, God, they have so much need, like they need Jordache jeans or they need attention. Jordache. Yeah, exactly. I'm wearing them right now. Oh, really? Uh, yes. Oh my God, those are super tight. <laughs> Acid washed. Well, just for people listening, in case right. you're wondering. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but like for me, it was funny because I was always getting the attention because I was getting it from all seven brothers and sisters. I was getting it because I was the youngest, like I was the baby. I was easy. You know what I wanted was like a Star Wars figure. Right. But, you know. Just the Millennium Falcon or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So what did your, uh, what did your folks do? Like what was taking you like around the South? Uh, my dad is a tactless genius. Um, he was an industrial engineer and he would go in to consult for companies and he would basically go in and work for six months, just turn these companies around, like just total failing companies, turn them around. They'd suddenly be profitable in such a short amount of time. And then he would basically be like, all right, I did this now. Pay me a bunch of money. I'm the man. I'm an asshole. And like, they'd be like, oh, well, you already did all the work. So now that you're sort of being blustery and we don't really like you that much, let's get rid of you. And so then he would get fired and then he wouldn't work for six months and then he would get hired somewhere else. So we were just going to like crappy small town. I mean, Anniston, Alabama listeners, I'm sure your town is great. (laughs) Uh, Murfreesboro, Tennessee. No, wait, not Murfreesboro. That was Paris. There's some place in Mississippi that I can't remember. 
All I remember about that was I had a 106-degree temperature and almost died. But Oh, my God. I pulled out. So did you like moving from town to town? Did this suck for you, having to go make new friends? Or was it something that you just sort of knew as normal? I've never talked about this, but the truth is I didn't care. Like, it didn't like, matter to me. But then when I was in ninth grade, uh, it, at the age of 10, we moved back to St. Louis. And I met uh, one of my best friends who uh, we just finished a writing project together in Orlando. So it, that was a really cool thing to, to reunite with him. But when I was 10, having him as a friend and we were just, we were like the friends, you know, the closest you can be. And uh, like leaving him became weird, but it still just, it was still within a normal situation in my mind. But then my parents were always so, my mom was always like, I know it's hard and I know we're moving to these, like we moved to Sykeston, Missouri, some little crap hole in the well, boot. I've, I've, uh, I've eaten, uh, my family used to take road trips when I was a kid from our house in Milwaukee all the way down to Louisiana for the holidays. Oh my God. We would stop in Sykeston, Missouri, and there was a place that had throwed rolls. Throwed rolls. That's the one. What's it called? Uh, Lambert's. Lambert's. Yeah, that's hilarious. I have eaten, well, when I was a kid, I thought it was the, I was like seven years old and they're yeah, throwing yeah. bread around the restaurant. I thought yeah. it was the greatest. That's hilarious. Yeah. For, so we moved there and my mom was just like, I'm so sorry. You know, I know this is disruptive. La la. She's throwing rolls at you. Yeah, she's throwing <laughs> rolls at me. I mean, I was like, oh. If this is disruptive, I can sort of do whatever I want. Like it was, it was the first time in which I was like a little manipulative. I was like, oh, I, I don't have to be a straight A student. I don't have to pay attention. So I sort of just dicked around and wasn't a, you know, I was just like, oh, I'm gonna do whatever ninth graders do or whatever. And then my grades suffered, and she was like, this is all our fault. We keep moving around, and effectively it was her fault, but for a totally different reason. It was just that she gave me permission to be a screw up, right? And I was like, and my screw up version is so timid oh, <laughs> relation so almost did, anyone. no drugs you weren't going never i've never done a drug in my life ever ever I, well i put cocaine on my tongue in beirut because a guy if you're gonna put cocaine on your tongue beirut a, is the place it's the only place <laughs> this guy was just being such an aggressive a-hole like he literally stood over like hunched over me in his apartment he's like do it do it do it and like you think after and i'm just like i'm never gonna do it like i was so calm and whatever but he literally did that for like 45 to 60 seconds. Like, think about how long of a time yeah, that is. He's done so much coke. Oh, he's, my God. He yeah. was out of his mind. I can't believe I lived through that trip. The The other guy that was there doing a lot of yeah, coke. What were you doing in Beirut in somebody's apartment with a bunch of cocaine? Um, me and my best friend, we always take trips. The friend who you... you a different friend. Okay. My British, my British bestie, um, who I, is like an adult friend. And we... Uh, an adult friend. <laughs> the other guy remains 11 years old. But uh, he and I would just, we took a trip every year uh, somewhere in the world. And one year we went to uh, Beirut, Tel Aviv, Amman, and Jerusalem. And in Beirut, my girlfriend at the time, my, this is when I was living in Paris, my girlfriend at the time had introduced me to a guy she went to school with. And he was just a cokehead. Like, we would be like, oh, take us to a great um, restaurant in Beirut. We want to eat, you know, Lebanese food. And he'd be like, I know this French steakhouse. <laughs> like, he was such, he literally didn't care about anything but himself. And it was really fascinating. And he was deeply unhappy. And uh, and then his other friend, we actually liked, he drove us home at like 9 in the morning. And I remember we were going about 90 miles an hour down a street. It would be like going 90 miles an hour down Olympic, let's say. And then we passed the street that our hotel was on, and I very nonchalantly go, and we missed it. <laughs> and he heard it, and he slammed on the brakes, and we skid for like, I don't know, 20 feet, 30 feet, however fa however far you go. And then he jammed it in reverse and went back as fast as he could, just like, you know, no big deal, and then slammed into drive and then turned into the road. And I was like, 
there was no seatbelt in the back seat. And I thought, yeah, oh. what are you, what are you doing even in this guy's car? I know it's crazy. That's uh, you know, Beirut, it's a different, different vibe. <laughs> Just go with it. Yeah. And I was, I, at this point, you know, it was like, I think it was 9am, maybe it was only six or 7am, but I was, I had sobered up and I was just like, oh man, I always wondered. And I guess this, this is how I die. Yeah. And I made it. So here you are. Maybe. Here you are. This could be a ghost version of me, <laughs> you know? Uh, okay. So you, where did you f- complete high school? Uh, Hayeswood Central High School in Florissant, Missouri. So basically St. Louis. And you never, did you drink? Uh, not until I was 20 and then really not until my 21st birthday. Did you have alcoholism in your family? Did you see like stuff that made you, turned you off to it or were you just a good kid? Great question. Um, my three brothers, well, I really only spent time with two of my brothers growing up. They were both, I, I mean, drug addicts, alcoholics, like I remember my dad, like my dad and my brother, my brothers had to be acting like the biggest penises ever. I don't remember it that well. I just remember like fist fights with my dad in the living room. I was like, well, this is great. <laughs> I mean, you don't want to hear that. And it was just like, whoa. And then, um, and then I remember one time I found out that my brother had slept in my sister's closet and he had a gun. And I was like, oh cause he God. was fucked up. Obviously he had been kicked out of the house and he didn't have any place to go. So my sister let him in the window and that's a great idea. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so he'd like curled up and with a gun and with a gun. It's so weird <laughs> as one does, as one does. If you're going to curl up in a closet, guys, <laughs> be armed fast, fast lesson. Yeah. Um, arm yourself to the teeth. Uh, yeah, exactly. So yeah, it was, I don't know what the question was, but I just, I mean, but I, no, I you saw that. that as a kid and you, there was chaos that you right. that, that I think that can often make a person, uh, predisposed to not want to consume right that's what it was yeah and to me that i think that made me dreamier like that the world seemed a little bit like floaty and i always say when i write like when i'm at my best that i refer to as head float it's like my head is on a balloon and the string is just you know like keeping it tied to my body but in terms of alcohol and things like that it was just a bummer and i all i'm gonna be totally honest with you um again i don't ever talk about this kind of stuff but i I am a little bit of an egotist about my mind. Like I love, however my brain has shaped itself over the years, I'm super stoked about and proud of. It goes to weird places. I'm too scatological sometimes, but there's like, there's just weird dalliances that my brain takes. And I remember being young and I was like, if I do that, then won't, isn't there a risk that I'll become this other thing? Yeah. I'll become darker or I'll become more cynical. You like to have control. I'm, yeah, that's that's ultimately what it comes down to. It's just a control thing. It's probably that, like, there was so much going on and flying around, and I didn't feel threatened by it. I must have at different times. Or tr- you had to have been somewhat traumatized. It's your dad's having a fist fight in the right. living room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I must have. And yet, at the same time, like, my protection mechanism was like, well, I'm not going to be that way. I'm not going to do that thing. And also, control-wise, I was like a perfect kid. You're the you family know? hero. Family hero. I was the golden child. Right. Which also, m- when my mom was passing, I was like, hey! Like, what did I do? I, like, I get a medal. Yeah. I, I'm the kid who was I'm good. the best. I won. Um, which I kind of won. I think, I think I've sort of won. We'll did, see. Did, what, what has happened to your brothers? Have they sobered up? Yeah. Um, well, one drinks. Well, the one that I didn't know. This is a hilarious story. I mean, are people going to be interested in this? Let's find out. Yeah, we love this stuff. Uh, yeah. The, when I was 15, I got home from baseball practice. And um, I remember getting out of my friend's car, and I was just starting to walk on like the, the concrete, the bent elbow bent concrete path to the front door. And I stopped and I was like, Oh shit, my brother Dwayne is in there. And 
I'd never met my brother Dwayne and he had just gotten out of prison. Holy shit. And I was like, wow, like what's this going to be like? The legendary Dwayne. Trust me. Uh, so I went in and there was his brother that I had never met and I was 15 years old. Never really even thought about. How much older? Uh, let's see. I think he's six. I think he's 57 now. Okay. So that good so 15, 16, 16 years. Yeah. Like a 31 year old dude who's like, I'm six one and I weigh like one forty seven and gain a pound a year. <laughs> and he was like six four and weighed like one thirty nine. I mean, this dude is just like nothing but bone and, and muscle and he's just super skinny. And what, what did he go to prison for? Well, what he told me, which was a really, I'll, I'll, this is a good, uh, he said he was, he had gone with some friends, they had gotten drunk and then he had stayed in the back of the car and he had passed out or fallen asleep while they robbed a house and then they all got arrested. And I remember seeing the Shawshank Redemption with him. And then there's that moment where they go, well, everybody's innocent in prison. And I turned to him like, mother, like you, <laughs> he didn't even notice, but I was like, what the, that you totally did it. Like yeah. you've told this story anyway. So he was like, I mean, I don't want to say white trash, but he's like a dude who's not a, afraid. He's like, I can't tell. And you just tell hilarious, crazy stories. And they would always include at least one to 75 in bombs. And I was just like, we've never, I'd never heard that. You know, I mean, I grew up in St. Louis. So from a racism standpoint, you know, I, I think we were, we were raised to be better. I think there were some inherent prejudices from my family, but I was never introduced to them. You know, I remember being, this is pretty crazy actually, but I remember being 19 sitting on the couch and one of my other brothers was like, yeah, Jews are doing blank, but I can't remember what he was complaining about. And I was like, I don't even know. A, no, that's probably not true. You sound like a fucking idiot, but also like how oh, Jewish people are different, like 19, but I just hadn't, I don't know. It was, it's weird. It's really limited, I guess. Hadn't been exposed. Way. Yeah. I mean, you're in the you're exposed. small town kid, Midwest. Yeah. Yeah. You don't necessarily have access. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. It, it's interesting to me. And so, yeah, that's why I didn't do drugs, but yeah, my other brothers have cleaned up and, uh, yeah, it's interesting. What was the religious situation in your house? Uh, Lutheran, um, was the religion of choice, but I don't remember. I remember going to church like once every six months. I would always act sick, and then I would stay home and watch uh, Lost in Space. Sure. Which, by the way, is not good. No. I mean, I I hated it. It, it always gave me kind of like a weird sick feeling. Yeah, it wasn't it was. good. And like, burr, 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 burr. I just thought, and, and like that was the era where you had three channels. So it was either watching some religious stuff, something else, or Lost in Space. And of course, you know lost in space but i would just lay there and i was like god this is horrible i don't know i mean i think i read a lot as a kid i, I started reading when i was three but I, now i'm like are you I, are you markedly different than most all of your siblings so what happens is every once in a while somebody will come home with me either a girl or a friend and they'll meet everybody and when we leave the house alone they always go i know this is a weird thing to say I don't understand how you came from because yeah, people listening who have never uh, seen Literary Deathmatch or don't have not seen uh, Todd or Adrian Todd before, he's uh, very dapper. You're very dapper, well put together. I've never seen you. I've never seen you just like wearing like a t-shirt and jeans. You're always like properly coiffed, right? Well dressed, collared shirt, collared shirt. Um, you know, it doesn't seem to uh, jive with you know growing up with 
fist fights in the living room and right. a brother you've never met coming home from prison and I, so this is really important i i think i was 10 or 11 and my mom we were at the and because my father would like get a job lose a job get a job lose a job we were always like flush and then it was like food stamp time like it was a pretty like that was the thing and i actually remember finding a, a newspaper clipping in the in the drawer of my parents house when i was i think it was like 22 visiting home and it was about this newspaper had written about how we had like didn't have money and we had to take money from the church or like all this different they stuff. wrote about your family yeah and, Jesus. I was, and i was like thanks i was just like crying my eyes out. i was like this is so like they had to deal with this like how fucking heartbreaking um but it was it was yeah and uh so i remember when i was young and we had gone to the grocery store and my mom we're in this the cereal aisle my mom's like pick out a box of whatever you want you know my mom loved frosted flakes or rice krispies with like more sugar than you can ever imagine <laughs> and uh and i went and i grabbed one of the generic boxes or just a white box that said like flakes of joy whatever yeah, it was yeah flakes I, of corn flakes of corn and i brought them to her and she's like you put that back you're better than that i didn't know what that meant but from that moment on i was like okay like you're better than that whatever that is so pretty much that I think that was a pretty life altering. Like if I were to have told her that story, I think she would have been like, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, all these moments in your life that really, you know, seem to, to fuel you. And I was that, I don't know. She always raised me to be smart and it conscious. Makes and me freaked out as a parent to think of what moment my kid is going to register as like profound and yeah. like, uh, you know, unshakable in her memory or his memory. I know. And you don't you know, watch know. what you say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Be careful. And, and then as I grew up, my mom always, I was working at a video game magazine. You know, I was an editor. It was great. I was writing stories and everything. And my mom would always call and she's like, well, you need to wear a suit to work. And I was like, mom, it's a like, literally if I wear a collared shirt, I'm in the top 1%. You know, that's just not what people wear. She's like, well, I'm telling you, if you're going to advance, if you're going to law, and she was totally wrong. But at the same time, I think the great, I don't know if it's irony, this might be an Alanis Morissette situation, but the idea that I now actually do wear a suit to work, it kind of makes me like, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. 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 Well, she's looking out for you. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, it's a difficult childhood. I, I didn't realize you'd have, I mean, it is, I mean, it's a good childhood in a lot of respects, but like you've been through a lot. It is funny because you just said that and I like gave you a little smirk like, eh, maybe. Like, and then you said it is because it's like, to me, I don't know. I guess I kind of relate it to how I deal with everything, which is just like, all right. Like if there's failure, like, all right, here we go again. Like take a breath, you know, put your hands on your knees and be like, okay, that wasn't great. But I think it's made me very flexible and adaptable. Resilient. Yeah. As yeah, an mofo. It toughed you. It, it toughened you up. I know. It I'm, toughed you. I'm a softie. What am I, five years old? I think I'm mentally tough, but, you know, I did run this morning. So there yeah. we go. So, okay. So you go to college? I did. How did you pull that off? Uh, that's actually a really good question. Um, it's not that great. Like, relatively speaking, I don't know if that's the, the <laughs> one that's going to win the Pulitzer here. But uh, anyway, uh, my... My mom, so my, my best friend, who I just did that writing project with since I knew I was 10, I'll name him Mike, um, he had, uh, how do I say this? Basically, I didn't understand how I was going to get to go to college. And my mom was like, I mean, I had the grades, I had everything going for me, but no money. And my mom was like, you're going to college. And I was like, great. Uh, and then the way I handled doing my taxes 
is the way I handled going to college, which is just like, I don't don't get it. I'm not going to do it. And you know, and now my brother does all my taxes for me. Thank God. But I was just like, I don't get it. I don't, I don't get how it would happen. So, and I didn't have the counselors that were very good, I guess, or whatever. But my mom basically was like, she would just be on the phone calling student loan people. And like, she's like, you have to do this application for whatever. And I was like, okay. And I would do that. But the, I, the larger concept, I was like, I don't, but mom, I don't get it. And maybe I would, when my mom tried to teach me to iron when I was 14, she started, she's like, this is how you iron. And she would watch me and then I would do a really crappy job on purpose. And then she'd snatch the iron away. She's like, no, you do it like this. And then now do it. And then I would do a crappy and she would do it for me, but I was doing it on crappy on purpose. So she would just iron this one shirt for me. It's like a teach a man to fish situation. And so I never really learned to pro- properly iron uh, because I was just like, I don't know, in the moment, or what? I just being a dipshit. And uh, so that's how I was about college. I was like, you know, I would only do as much as I absolutely had to. And then thank God for her. And then I went to the University of Missouri for my first year. And, uh, and then I moved. I decided that I was a big city guy and that that was a, a low stakes deal for me whatever that meant. Um, I'd started as a pre-law student and immediately I was like, Oh, now that I'm out of the house, I don't give a crap about this. I just want to be a writer. And then, uh, and they had a journalism school, but I was like, no, I'm a, I'm not a journalist student. I'm a, this, you know, I'm a fiction writer, which is interesting. It's like being in LA and telling people you, you're a novelist is way cooler to people because everybody else is a screenwriter. So in school I wasn't the, I'm a contrarian, whatever. And then, uh, and then I went to University of Missouri St. Louis for one year because my my other really close friend from high school was like, "If you wait a year, then I'll go to DePaul University in Chicago with you." And this guy just seemed like he was stuck in a rut, and he he just didn't seem like the kind of gumption kind of guy. And I was like, "All right." So I lived in St. Louis for a year. Um, went to this kind of crappy school. It was good. It was a good time, I guess. Did you not have a good time at University of Missouri? I so my best friend and I were there together. And we adorned, but it was also this moment of like figuring it out. And, you know, I was like, oh, other friends, interesting people, you know, it was just a college thing. And I think it was hard for us because he was kind of like, you're losing your way. And I was like, well, you need to expand, I guess. I don't know. It's interesting to me. I mean, um, were you unhappy that for that first year? Well, we were rushing, I guess it's what it's called for a fraternity. And then we got into a fraternity. We we basically been like taken to dinner by this one fraternity like 300 times it was kind of a nerdy fraternity and everybody just seemed sweet but like for nerdity for nerdity (laughs) and they didn't seem that cool but they really liked us and we were like you guys are nice and then you know like three days before you decide this other fraternity which we deemed as cooler was suddenly interested and then we went with them which is sort of a really shitty thing ultimately and then when i got in there everybody was always like uh you're a smart ass. And I'm like, I think of it as being sarcastic, but eh, I was way more sarcastic at that age. (laughs) And it just was never a good fit. And everybody was trying to, you know, I didn't really like the, like the hazing was stupid. Yeah. It's like you would get yelled at, but interestingly, Oh, this is fascinating. There's a guy in Sykeston. When I lived there as a ninth or 10th grader, um, I had dated his ex-girlfriend and then, uh, he would like call and threaten me and they would like come over to my house and just stand outside, like come out so we can beat the shit out of you. Awesome. I was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go ahead and stay inside. So that was a very threatening time and very strange. Um, and then I never got, I've never gotten beaten up. I've never been in a real fight. And, uh, 
So anyway, there's still time. Yeah. <laughs> so going to University of Missouri, getting in this fraternity, that dude was in the fraternity and he was like one of the people hazing me, but he would like say really nasty shit in my ear while they were, you're supposed to stand there in the dark or whatever and just look up at the ceiling while they just tell you you're a piece of shit. But and it was so stupid. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand you guys have to do this. It had no mental effect on me, but this dude would come over and he was like, I can't wait to blah, blah, blah. I'm going to blah, blah. I was like, dude, you have a real bone to pick, which I don't feel like I have anything to do with. Yeah. And then he would like the next day, he'd be really good friend of mine. I think he's a sociopath. I, Phil Barkley, Berkeley. I don't remember his name now, but he, I think he's a sociopath. Oh. Uh, he's probably listening to this. Yeah, I'm sure he is. It. Yeah. Uh, so then you go to, you, you go to back to St. Louis and then eventually you get to DePaul in Chicago. DePaul that's where you, Chicago. that's from where you graduate. That's from where I graduate. And you were an English major or what? I was, I think I was the first ever English major creative writing minor because okay. the year of my graduation, like the last semester I went in to see my counselor he's like oh you can't minor in the same thing the same field you major in like you have to do psychology or something as a minor and i was like all right well i guess i'm not gonna graduate he's like eh, we'll make an exception i was like thank god <laughs> i mean i yeah i wasn't gonna go to i i use school as a way to pay in retrospect a way to pay a bunch of money to go write fiction secretly but i wasn't going to a school for creative writing like the creative writing classes I were do I was doing were you know pretty low impact and uh, it was just a place to keep writing. Yeah. So and living yeah. and you're living in Chicago. Living in Chicago. You're a big city guy. Big city guy. That I was, was too that afraid was to go to New York. Yeah, I mean, it made me feel like I was I was too afraid to go to New York. New York seemed like too big of a beast. I kind of wish I would have, but I lucked out. Like I'm in the right place now. Um, but yeah, it was it was interesting being in Chicago. I'm a Cubs fan, uh, so that was a draw. My friend from University of Missouri, he had ended up going, transferring to University of Chicago at a certain point. Um, yeah, it's interesting, the the Chicago thing. It just, I wanted to feel like I could live a bigger life, which is sort of like, I think an undercurrent of my life is this idea that I could be doing more or I can, like, like you. basically what it comes down to is I was given love all my youth. So that to me translates to like, living up to that so that I can make my parents proud. Sure. Which also simultaneously translates in this concept that I've had for a long time, which is I want my children to be proud of me. I don't have any kids yet, but I very <laughs> future active, children, my future. I want my children very actively to be like, wow, he might not have gotten X, Y, and Z when he was going for them, but he got like in, I can't remember what's after him. He got like M N O, you know, and most importantly, like he tried. Right. And so that's a really important message I would like to deliver to children that I hope to have within the next all of five my days. children, all of my child listeners out there right now are benefiting yeah. from that wisdom. It's huge. Yeah. <laughs> that's, and you're getting it from a childless guy. That's, that's but maybe not for long. You know, you know, yeah. We'll see what happens. Um, okay. So how do we get to literary death match from DePaul? Oh yeah. So, uh, I graduated, I moved to San Francisco and then I moved to Vancouver. Then I moved to Toronto and then I moved to New York. What's finally. precipitating all these moves? Um, I moved to San Francisco because official PlayStation magazine. I was writing for them, and they invited me. They're like, you can, we can give you a severance package. You can go live in New York like you want, or you can go to San Francisco to have a job. And I was like, job sounds fun. Sure. Like, I was smart enough at that age. Uh, and then I moved to Vancouver to work with Electronic Arts, EA Sports. They wanted me to be a producer. I didn't understand what that meant. They ended up kind of 
not firing me as a producer, but being like, okay, we're going to let you be a writer on this other game. I was, it was the best. I loved it. And then at the same time, I was like, eh, sort of the first eight months were weird. Vancouver just didn't feel very good to me. Um, and then I ended up meeting this girl that was not, it was, I, I think she's, she actually is the worst person I've ever dated. And <laughs> I've been around, you know, like I've, my, my search for like being in love with somebody who's brilliant has been a big, big thing in my life and big motivator. But this girl, years after we broke up, uh, I found out she was living in Berlin through social media or whatever. So I invited her out for, um, tea and she told me this story. So you guys decide this to me, I've already biased you, but she, we were sitting there and she, uh, she said she had been invited to be on a panel. She's a language poet, by the way, which let's not get into that. What's a language poet. Let's definitely not get into that for the <laughs> language poets listening. But she, uh, she was like, I went, I was invited to this panel and I didn't even understand why they invited me, but I said, yes, like it was for people who publish things and I don't even publish things. So I don't even know why I went. And then she said she was at the panel and two of her friends at the panel were sitting on the opposite side of this girl who kept writing in a notebook over and over. I'm a valid artist. I'm a valid artist. I'm a valid artist. And she said, isn't that crazy? And I said, well, I don't know. Like, what did she look like? Was she just, I don't know. And she's like, no, that's all you need to know. That is insane. <laughs> and I was like, well, maybe she was responding. That is a little insane, right? No, I, here's, so I said two things. I go, well, maybe she's responding to the panel and it's boring because people like you are doing it and you shouldn't be on the panel. It, so could, say it yes. could be done tongue in cheek. Maybe she's being. It could be done tongue in cheek. And also I thought like maybe she's having a moment in her life where she's, she's like, you know what? You're doing this hard work of creating and like, just, just write it out, write it out and convince yourself. Okay. We're all telling ourselves any story we can to continue. I'm a valid to podcaster, by the way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so like this idea, I was just like, it really came down to compassion. I was like, you don't know anything else about this girl except that. Like your friends didn't tell you what she looked like. Like if she was drooling all over herself and had like half of her hair cut off, you can go like, all right, maybe she's struggling. Right. But my instinct is to be like, well, let's ask some other questions. And she was like, and then she started yelling at, not really yelling. She's just like, no, you, you, how could you not see it? That's clearly insane. I was like, okay, you have no compassion. Anyway, so that was the worst person ever dated. But we moved uh, to Toronto so she could go to the University of Toronto together. And uh, So literary death match. Right, Where sorry. is it born? I'm trying to get there, but I, I keep telling long well, stories. Well, you have an itinerant existence. You've, lived, you've been all over life. the world. You jump around all over the planet. And so, but it, what, what, in what city was LBM born? Sitting in a sushi restaurant, I think around January 15th of 2006, uh, 10 years ago, 10 years ago, a decade ago, God, what are we doing? Uh, I was sitting with my girlfriend at the time, Elizabeth and, uh, Elizabeth Koch and Dennis DeClaudio, who, uh, was at the time writing for comedy central's political blog. And we just decided that literary events were, they should be better. Um, and we sat down and we had this sushi dinner and we just talked through it. And by the end of that, we had literary death match. Okay. Just like that. And the next morning, actually, I don't think we knew we had it, but the next morning I sent an email. It was like, all right, here's how we're going to do it based on all we talked about. And we're going to call it literary deathmatch, like Dennis said. And he responded, I have no memory of saying those three words. Uh, and I was like, even more fun. Like, that's a good story. Now, are uh, Elizabeth and Dennis still involved in any way? No, Elizabeth, she did 10 events with us. And she hosted the first 
I think she hosted the first four, co-hosted the the last six of those. And then she's like, you know what? You want to do this way more than I have time for and thought for. Like, she just wanted to write. And she's like, so just do it. Which I was like, ah, oh, God, I would love some help. But at the same time, I was also like, ooh, now I can do it wherever. Like, now I have the freedom to do it wherever. And then Dennis, really after the first event or two, he was like, keep going. <laughs> right. Good, good luck. Good luck. Uh, so, yeah. So that was um, that was sort of the participation. And, and you then, said Elizabeth's name's Coke? Yeah. Any... Uh... Some relations. Some relations to the Koch brothers. Yeah. She's the daughter. She's what's amazing about her is she is she does catapult now. She and Black Moon Publish bleh, Black Balloon Publishing. Okay. And she's think she's an amazing writer. I, I don't know if she won the Glimmer Train short story prize, but she was like a finalist for it at least. And she studied under George Saunders. So yeah, she you know, when she left LDM she went on this other path. So it was interesting. And she helped get it off the ground. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. And we, you know, it was, it was cool because she has, you just want as many perspectives as possible. Mine, like ultimately the shows, my relation to my mom is very important in the show and how it, uh, it subsisted. Is that a word that means continued? It survived. Survived. <laughs> That's it. Subsisted. Continued. Subsisted is maybe a little bit uh, more hardcore. All oh, right. Continued. Definitely subsisted. Yeah. No, but yeah, so I always say that, um, back, bringing it back to the mom, but I always uh, talk about how my goal in the show is to make everyone feel good, the audience, the readers, and the judges. And that's a really interesting thing to try to balance as a, as a competitive show and how I'm always trying to like keep that alive. And that was just my mom. My mom was always like, is everybody taken care of? Is everybody having a good time? I'll worry about me later. And uh, so, yeah, that's sort that's of... what you do when you have eight kids. I guess so. So what, tell people who have never been to a literary death match or don't know what it is, like people coming at it completely fresh, uh, what is it? Do you want the 19-second version? Yeah. I wonder how long... Check your phone and see how long I take to do this, but I'm going to give you the fastest version of it that I usually tell people. Go ahead. It's four authors reading their own work for seven minutes or less, and then they're judged by three all-star judges in the categories of literary merit, performance, and intangibles. Those three judges say wild, wacky, interesting things about each of the four readers. They pick two finalists to go into the finals, and then those two finalists compete in the literary deathmatch finale, uh, which is like pin the mustache on Hemingway or a literary spelling bee in which you spell complicated author names, and that's how we decide the ultimate winner. Gotcha. 19. It's a fun entertaining romp it honestly when i went to edinburgh fringe festival i went to to go just see shows one year and uh i remember coming out of some shows being like how does that even exist that was so fun and special and interesting and totally arrogantly i'm gonna say this but i think that's how some people engage with literary deathmatch because so many people come up to me after especially in la um because we do it at largo which is this brilliant theater it's like such to me I met Nick Offerman last night and we talked at George Saunders reading. He just came to hang out <laughs> George Saunders and we were talking about Largo and how, how grateful we are and to be part of that thing. Like that's where Sarah Silverman, Pat Noswalt, Tignataro, like Zach Galifianakis, that's where they do their shows. You right. Know? Yeah. And what a privilege it is to do it there. And, uh, and so many people after the show there have come up to me and they're like, Oh, my friend invited me, and I was like, I don't want to go to a reading. And then afterwards, I, and then I saw what it was, and I was like, Wow, that, this is like the coolest thing I've ever been to. And I was like, Yeah, I know. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I don't say that. I'm just like so grateful. This. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, but, but it, you know, it's a kind of like people don't go to literary. Most people, unless they're writers or they're, it's like a friend has published a book or something like that, they don't go to literary events. Right. And I thought I don't think people immediately think that a literary event should be entertaining in any kind of traditional uh, way. And then they go and it's like, oh, that was a show. And, right. uh, that, you know, that was funny and unexpected and everything else. And so, you know, that's a, I think that's a noble thing to try to do because it, you know, there, there's no rule book anywhere that says that uh, literary events have to unfold in a certain way. Right. You know, and, you're kind of experimenting with the form. Yeah, absolutely. And the idea of creating a show, of making a literary event an event, you know, not – it's I, I never call us a reading. I call us an event on purpose because it's like the judges are funny. Like it's interesting. When we first started, the idea was how – well, I'll say this. This is a story I, I sometimes tell, and it's that – when we were coming to the creation of it, I remember going to a reading and there was uh, a person who read and then they brought on a comedian and then a person that read and then a comedian and the person who followed the comedian. I mean, comedians are special. I mean, they're looking out at the crowd. They're like, they're engaged. There's no notes. So this guy who followed the comedian, like stared quietly at his paper as he quietly read and he talked about his dead sister but he had followed this dude who was hilarious, who had no notes. So it wasn't just the tone change. It was kind of like, oh, if he would have told that same story as a moth thing, I think it would have worked. But anyway, people were trying in New York at that time to figure out a way to make readings interesting. And they're like, well, if we bring in comedians. And I was like, that doesn't work. It's just, it's screwy. So the idea of having judges was like contextually offering comedy. You know, if the reader, if the judges... You know, Moby judged the first show. He's hilarious. For him to be judging literature does two things. First of all, it's just a totally different perspective. And second, from an audience standpoint, you go, what's he doing judging a literary event? I got to see this. You know, and right. that, that was a big driver for us. How do you get these celebrities to do this? Oh, my God. It's, I'll, I'm going to totally, I'm going to say it as plainly and as honestly as possible. We're just really nice. We're patient. We're nice. And I think the thing I can add on to it that is just a conjecture is that I think people, I think everybody ultimately wants to be literary. Like literature is the one thing that keeps going. Like people like writing a book being, you know, when we talk about, I can tell a story about Howard Hawks, the director of, uh, I can't remember movies, his girl Friday. And it's like pretty amazing movies but you don't know him or like film writers of the past. You don't know them. But if I tell a story about F Scott Fitzgerald or Sylvia Plath or, you know, then, or Charles Dickens, like you're like, Oh, I know that person, you know, and there there's mystery writers. And then there's also, you know, they stand as their work. And then as you find them out, that's an interesting point. It's like maybe in their time, they don't experience celebrity in the way that maybe more ephemeral kinds of celebrity can exist in the short term but then if you are lucky enough to be a writer whose work survives and achieves like renown or whatever then that's a more durable form of uh you know celebrity yeah yeah it's i find it i i think that's the one reason that when we moved to la i say we all the time but when i moved to la with the show four years ago my number one goal i was like this is too good it's too fun it's too interesting and again i'm not like saying how great we are. I, I just think it's, it's all right. It you deserves it. Yeah. It's your, it's your baby. Yeah. But I, I think it's like, there's so much sweetness and surprise and interesting stuff in it. I'm just like this, this has a shot at being on TV and we ended up, you know, shooting a pilot that was expensive and didn't really turn into a pilot in a sense, but we got a, a reel out of it that we've been pitching around. 
But the idea that we could do that with a literary event that wasn't book TV, you know, we never said, Hey, book TV, do you want this? It's the last place we would ever go. Um, it's, it's kind of interesting. I don't know. I'm so, okay. So what's going, okay. A 10 years of literary death match. 10 years. Is there going to be another 10 years? Are you evolving into something else? Do you feel like, um, the live show, like, are you going to ever pass the microphone to a new host? Like, did you franchise this thing around the world? Cause you do this all over the world. 60 cities, 60 cities globally. You're traveling, you know, I don't know how many days a month, but I feel like every time I, I hear from you, you're like, I just got back from, you know, somewhere. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, actually translating globally is a hugely important part for the show. Cause we can do it in Helsinki. We can do it in Bucharest. Actually, I was pretty blown away. We just did the show for Bu- in Bucharest, Romania for the first time on December 2nd last year. A festival had invited us out. And it was actually, I think, one of the 10 best shows we've ever done. Yeah, and what would, is the best show you've ever done? Is there one that stands out? Yeah. There's there's one that just, to me, it's the best. And it's on our podcast. I think it's Literary Deathmatch LA, episode 33. It's the one where Liz Merriweather reads. Um we actually had Fred Savage drop out last minute, and I was like, oh, God, we really wanted him. That motherfucker drops out everywhere. <laughs> Does he? No, I'm just kidding. All right. <laughs> I, he's the busy dude. That's one of the struggles yeah. of getting famous people is people want them to do things. So, uh, But Chris O'Dowd was like, all right, I'll do it. And I was like, holy shit, Chris O'Dowd's going to do it. Um, and then we had uh, Catherine Hahn do that one, who she's just amazing. And uh, so anyway – we had a screenwriter special that that was the one and Graham Moore who went on to win the imitation game Oscar, uh, read in that one and Megan Amram. Like it, it was just awesome. And it, it, it's an interesting thing. At Largo? At Largo. Yeah. Sold out. Sold out. Yeah. Fucking Largo, like the crowd, second one on board. Like it's so fun. Um, and Flanny, the guy who runs Largo, he just believes in the show, which is again, it's just super cool. I remember when you moved here, we walked into Largo together for the first time. I think that was the first time you were there. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, you should do the show here. Yeah. Not to take credit, but yeah, yeah, no, it's all you. Uh, but the reason it's, it's interesting that you ask what the best show is because there's effectively nine things that have to be a plus for me to elevate it to that. So each reader has to be the best reader we've had in the night. The three judges have to get it and like nail it as hard as possible. Um, there has to be intelligence. There has to be total weirdness. There, you know, all those elements. Uh, I have to come out and like bring the noise. I have to be not only be good, but I have to feel good about how I'm being, which is a really interesting thing. You know, you we're old enough. Like sometimes you just wake up after a crappy night's sleep and you're like, all right, this isn't going to be the best. Yeah. Let's try to, no, yeah. <laughs> we're going to get through it. But you know, so, uh, and then the final thing is the finale has to come together and feel dramatic. It has to feel ridiculous. It has to, you know, and that was the one show which I was like, yep, that's the one. You that's did the it. best show we've ever done. Yeah. I'm thrilled it's on the podcast. Um, it's yeah. good that you have it on tape. Now exactly. You, yeah. you have proof that you yeah, actually yeah. got one right. <laughs> yeah. And the Bucharest one was so interesting to me because there was just everybody did something different. It was all in Romanian. Actually, there was one reader who read half in English, half Romanian. But this one guy, the final reader... I think he Wait, and you, were you hosting it in English? I was hosting in English. So that when I do it in the foreign languages, I host in English. I talk a little bit slower, but I host in English. And then I let everything happen around me. And the beats of the show are pretty specific. So I let everything happen around me. And then I'm just guessing, you know, like it's pretty <laughs> hilarious. And so that's also one of the inbuilt jokes. But this one, this final reader had written a poem over his entire body. And so he started reading it off of his arm. And everybody's like, oh, this is really funny. 
then his other arm. And then he had to roll up his shirt sleeves and then his other shirt sleeves. By the end of it, he was like reading off the inside of his thigh and his shirt was off and his shoes were off and his pants were off. And it was wearing underwear. He was wearing underwear. Okay. But it was just such a cool, like for, for us to have done 400, I think 417 events and to have something that we've never seen before. I always, like, I remember around the 200 event mark, like I was, I, I was sort of marveling at the fact that I was seeing stuff for the first time and I was like, Oh, nobody's ever done that. Nobody's ever done X. Nobody, like Caitlin Fitzgerald from master none one time. Or, I'm sorry. Masters of sex, slightly different show. <laughs> uh, at one point she just got up and tap dance, uh, as part of like her judging. I was like, Oh yeah. Nobody's ever done that. How she, cool. wore, she was wearing tap shoes. She wasn't, but she she just pulled it she off. She just anyway. pulled it off, yeah. yeah. And it was just like a funny thing to do. She's like, "Oh, this made me think this, and so this." And I was like, "That was cool." I think she made the reader tap dance with her, and it was just like a funny little moment. But it's like, okay, nobody's ever tap dance. Right. Nobody's ever done X, Y, Z. Um, you know, it's just uh, it's really cool. Actually, we just did a recent show, and I feel like somebody did something that had never happened before. But yeah, we do too many. Yeah. 400 that's a lot it's, it's a lot i yeah. just crossed 400 podcasts yeah it's the same thing it's a lot it's a gruel <laughs> it's it's like the most fun amazing thing to do but the real the, the most interesting thing for the show to me at this point is that we have for 10 years like if i could do it over and this is not how it works i would have started four years ago because i think all that i think that's when we really took off moving to la was a hugely significant moment for the show because I used to just go up there and I'd sort of be like, all right, let's have some fun. This is this and this. And then I moved to LA and I would go to see comedy shows. I'd go to see performances and I just, I see people host and I learned a lot. Oh my, I was like, Oh my God, this is how it's done. Yeah. I was like, we can be there. Like I had, uh, because I had enough stage time, I was like, I can get there, but man, like let's start now. So now I write my opening monologues and, uh, and try to memorize them. I just did an A.A. A. Milne opening monologue at, at Largo a couple of days ago. D- did not go over well. Like, usually my stumbling idiocy and, like, figuring out, but I wasn't feeling well. and It, it wasn't great. But I'll now develop that into, like, an airtight air, airful. Yeah. But, like, an opening monologue where I'm telling funny stories about A.A. A. Milne and he wrote Winnie the Pooh. Well, yeah, and you develop material. Just like comedians, they right. develop their material on stage and perfect it as they go. It's pretty wild. Uh, so what about taking the show to TV? I know you shot that pilot. Right. Um, I was there that night. That was like a, what, some weird space in Hollywood. Yeah. Boxing garden. There was a boxing ring. Ah, so fun. Okay. So you, you know, you shot that reel. It's now, you know, it's a good reel. I mean, I remember seeing some yeah. of the footage, like, uh, I want to say you sent it around on email. Yeah. yeah. And it, then you, uh, but, but getting a book related show onto television, even deep cable. Right. Is a huge challenge. The hugest. Uh, this is, I feel like a couple different times we'd, we'd gotten close, I think, and people would be like, how close are you? And I would say signing a contract and being nowhere near getting a TV show are kind of the same moment. That's how strange that is. And then recently that idea has evolved to where I say getting a TV show is like being in a room and you have one dart and there's a target somewhere, but you don't know where it is. And you get one shot at finding this target. And for us with Literary Deathmatch, by being 10 years old and having so much work put into it and having so many celebrities that have done it that hopefully will come back, especially in a TV format where we pay them legitimate money. Um, but the idea of having that target, like our target's big. It could be as big as a wall, but like there's 
a ceiling and a floor and three other walls to like maybe the targets there. So it's uh, what we've always been told, which really infuriates me. It doesn't infuriate me. I'll, I'll say what I've been told, what we've been told, and I'll tell you what my honest reaction is. Uh, we always say it's too smart for Hollywood. That's what, or that's what people say to us. And my reaction is, look, we're going to make an Ernest Hemingway joke. We're not going to make a Colson Whitehead joke. So give us a little credit. But what I've we come, can dumb it down. <laughs> yeah, we'll dumb it down and still make it literary. Like the Colson Whiteheads and the Amelia Grays, like we're going to put those in the show so you discover them. You know, while maybe you tune in because we lucked out and Jerry Seinfeld is going to judge, or you know, whoever is going to judge. J.J. Um, Abrams, come on, baby. Anyway, <laughs> like maybe they. That's the reason you tune in, but then you discover this other thing. And subversively, I'm like, maybe people watch the show as a TV show and never read the book. And that makes them feel literary enough because we talked about that idea of feeling literary. Well, it's like people feeling political by watching The Daily Show. Right, exactly. It's a, it's a very similar thing. Like, hopefully they go off and read. Hopefully people come to the show and they, you know, at least Google these people and, and follow them on Twitter. But the idea of of total engagement through TV, I get it. But, like, I, I just think it's not an expensive show to make. And I'm just shocked that somebody hasn't just gone you know what, let's just take a chance. Let's at least make it a web show. And what? And now that we're at the 10-year mark, the struggle for us is we're still like this little engine that could. I'm that engine. And <laughs> I don't want to say the cog, the cog tines are wearing out, but at the same time, I'm like, we can't just book any seven people now. I can't just book like some comedian I think is funny unless we have like a superstar to, to get the people that allows for people to find that comedian right. that I think is funny. Right. So it sucks. It's sort of like a really big challenge because we need celebrities to justify people seeing writers. We want to do nicer theaters. We want to charge more for tickets to pay people and to not starve to death. And yeah, it's interesting. So fundraising is what we're trying to do now. And I'm like, when am I going to have time to write one email to these strange people that have money that I have no idea where they are? You know, so that's that's a really fascinating moment because I we can't keep going the way we're going, um, and we don't need that much money. But I just need to hire people that, so one guy can go. Oh yeah, I know all these contacts. Let me just go get us a sponsorship. Like the show is too good, and people, you know, X Y Z would throw enough money to where we're like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. We don't have to do forty shows a year. We can do twenty four. So good and so big and so right. And give the writers the that do the show and the judges the proper, you know, promotion up until the show and then after the show and video and things like that. So and then what about the like? Are you doing? You were showing me some photos of a set that you're you're filming some stuff on. So you you've got something going. Yeah. So the big thing, you know, this is what happens when you meet with agents because I met with our agent in UK and the UK seems like where the show will take off um, as a TV show, but it's people just aren't buying that sort of thing. I want to call out this one network, but they're not, they don't have a book show. They might be arts might be part of their title. I'm not, I don't know. I can't remember, but like to not have a book show in that capacity, I, I'll say no more. I've already said too much, but the idea of having a book show, I don't, I, it just seems like just give it a shot. One season, six episodes. If it fails, it's better than watching a bunch of boring people. Not boring people, even interesting people just sit around and talk about a book. A book is too hard for people to go, oh, I'm going to go hurry up and read that 318-page book because that episode is on in two days. You know, it's just, that's not, it's just too hard. So to give the taste test, whatever. 
anyway, um, so what we're what we were told by our agent, they're like, "Well, just create content, and then that'll build you up, and then people can't resist buying your show." I was like, "Yeah, let's do that for free. That sounds right. really fun." Right. Like, uh, but at the same time, I'm like, "This is the future of the show." Effectively saying, you know, we've had 2,900 people do the show. Like 2,850 of those people are so interesting and fascinating. So how do we leverage? I'm, now everybody's like, who are the 50? I have no idea. I am. <laughs> that kidding. was my next question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but th- to basically say, I mean, I'll say what we're doing, then I'll say the psychology around it. But we want to just start perpetuating video. Video is the easiest way. It's a passive way in which people can come to discover the show. It because- travels without having to get onto an airplane. Right. Thank God for that. You know, and it's, uh, and it's just a way to promote people, not only for the thing they're doing, but as personalities. Cause so many of the people we do the show with are just interesting. They're just fun, interesting people with weird, cool ideas. And so we started shooting some things and a lot of it's interview based, but just like, what's it called? It's going to be uh, LDM or yeah. So that's another transition. We're going to start. We're basically for fundraising purposes and all that. We want to transition to LDM. So it's like the Ted, like a lot of people don't know what Ted stands for, but they know it's Ted. And what the fuck does Ted stand for? Technology, education and design, entertainment and design. Okay. And so we want LDM to be the parent company of literary Deathmatch, which is a, the event section, you know, and tonight I'm interviewing David Wayne at Soho house here in West Hollywood. And, the that's part of our LDM presents thing. So where we just interview somebody we find interesting. And, um, and so like all these things we're trying to do in audio form, video form. One of the things you're going to hear it here first, uh, LDM book report. And it's basically a daily show for books hosted by me, like fast, quick book information, sort of news based, uh, you know, have people on <laughs> like a funny show, a comedy, funny, but like very, smart and book related. But the big, the big idea is that if we have a writer on, it's not necessarily to talk about their book. It's because, Hey, that's my idea. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But the idea is that the, the writer represents books. So we don't need them to talk about their book. It's it's, it's often boring to have a writer talk about his or her book. Yeah. But if they're going to, you know, I, I love the idea of the show Fargo. I'd love Fargo. So I would love to have a writer just to talk about Fargo. You know, let's talk about uh, a movie you love, like who should win the Oscars, whatever. Just these are the things that we can talk about. And if a writer is doing it, then you go, oh, that person's really smart and interesting. But what do they do? So you go, oh, they have a book. Oh, I'll read that book. They think like me or they're weird or whatever. Yeah. So where is this going to be? Where can people see the the book report? So March 23rd, we're doing a soft launch in San Francisco. It's going to be part of the live show. Then April 1st, our huge, massive, unbelievable AWP spectacular at the Ace Hotel. That's where we're going to show um, Which the, I'm participating in. I know you are. Can't wait. Uh, that one, that's where we're going to show like a fully cut, like ready for the web that'll go up the next day. That's where people will see it for the first time. Maybe, maybe we'll hold it for a week, you know, punish the people that didn't come to the show. Uh, but yeah, so the idea is to start doing that regularly and it's not free to shoot, you know, I'm paying my friend. I'm like, all right, we'll figure out rent, but we just have to do this because it's too fun. It's just, uh, and there's a zaniness. You're just going to see like a joy. It's basically literary death match. If it were a, a daily show with book related content. So you where's know? your, where's your, uh, set? Uh, we rented a studio for the first one. Uh, we, it, and it was interesting cause I talked to my, 
my filmmaker friend who's doing it. And I was just like, you know, we could just do this outside in a park, have the same desk, same setup, but just do it outside. You know, so I'm like, we can do it in an apartment. We can do it. But if I would love to just do it with a swimming pool in the background, just do goofy things because that's what, you know, the truth is humor is the one thing that people are always going to click on. People want to laugh. And if you can give them something as well as laughing, give them content where they go, oh, that's great. There's a podcast called No Such Thing as a Fish, which is one of the most amazing things. It's based on the QI podcast. It's the elves from that is what they're called, like the literary elf. And, and they just, they talk about a fact. It's a crazy fun fact. And they just riff on it. And then they talk about, so each show has four facts. And you're, you're learning, but these people are hilarious. You know, they're each kind of poking each other for their facts and like saying funny things. And you, and it's just, the truth is humor is always going to be the thing that makes people go, that was amazing. Like if you can make people laugh, think about George Saunders, like that dude, I just saw him last night. I was just blown away. Like he is hilarious. And he refers when he talks about writing his stories, he's like, well, you know, I put a joke in here. I put a joke in there. I would never think about, uh, calling something I write in literature a joke, but it's like, it's pretty amazing. And who doesn't want to read that dude? And if you don't, fine, you're wrong. But he's, I, I'm emphatic about that. Like, I think he's the most innovative, interesting writer in, since Donald Bartleman. And just the idea of how important humor is. And then, because in my own writing, I always say, like, I walk him up a cliff of humor and then I push them off because that makes the drop even farther. So the heartbreak is that much more. But the truth is he does that, like, so much better, you know. So yeah. Yeah. He's, a, he's, a, he's a modern master. He's a modern master. And you've got a book that you just, uh, your agent just took out. Yep. So literally you a novel. You've been working on, the, on this novel for a long time. 12 years. And it's, uh, based on your, uh, childhood uh, family. No, but I do have a screenplay that's totally based. Uh, it's like two years after my mother's death in which I go to confront my brothers and sisters about their way of being, uh, during that time and in the past. And then I it's called, it's called me and Dwayne. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's interesting cause I, it's sort of a skewering book. And then what I realized is that my character comes to come, comes to find fault in himself and realize that he's a judgmental prick. Um, and it's super, it gets pretty, pretty dark and deep, but the, the uh, book is called judgmental prick, judgmental prick. We're going with that for the working title. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm just, uh, I'm writing as much as I can, which is never because producing these shows is a lot of work, but it's it's interesting with the 10 year anniversary because we're doing San Francisco, we're doing Brooklyn, uh Chicago, Irvin Welsh. Yes. Um and we're doing uh London and the UK. We're doing two in LA. We're doing the April 1st the Huge for AWP, then we're doing it with the LA Time Festival books a week later. And like I said, like trying to get that to my standard now and like just cranking that pinwheel. <laughs> it's really hard. So I'm just like god, I want to be writing because I just finished this book and now all my ideas and it's free and I can, I can just write. And I'm like, ah, okay, let's look at like, literally I'm go like, book some shows. Yeah. Like mid April. I'm like, maybe I'll find some time in, oh, probably not. Probably May. <laughs> May looks like, and I'm like, what? That's horrible. But you yeah, know, it is adults. what it is. It's Indeed. what it's, uh, it's great to have you on. It's overdue. I feel like we should have had you on a while. How back. long have we been talking? Like uh, three and a half hours? Yeah. About. I did tell you before we started, uh, what if I had to go to the bathroom? Cause I drink a gallon of water a day as a practice. And, uh, this I've, is like a health thing. Uh, people ask why I look young. And I say that I drink, I'd say I drink three liters of water a day. 
I sleep eight hours a day and I compartmentalize stress. They get super excited when I say the first two because they're like, okay, yep, next. Yep, can do that. Compartmentalize stress. Ah, what do by, you mean? By the way, Todd, uh, Todd has wet himself is yeah. what he's trying to <laughs> that's say. Also, that's also part of it. No, I really love being on. It's such a cool – I just love – like you and I with just the idea of just keep going and it will – find its thing and i know you and i both talked about like what are we fucking doing <laughs> like what what are we doing do people 400, care 400. 400 the magical 400 yeah that's the tipping point yeah <laughs> we, 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 which we still don't know which way we've tipped <laughs> <laughs> that's all part of the fun indeed uh, we'll see you at uh the ace hotel theater on april fool's day for real for real and uh thanks for coming over and doing the show of course you're the best okay there you go Adrian Todd Zaniga, Literary Deathmatch. It's happening on March 10th in Chicago at the Improv Olympic Theater, March 23rd in San Francisco at the Alamo Draft House. April 1st here in Los Angeles, I will be there uh, on April 2nd, San Antonio, Texas at the Empire Theater, and then back in Los Angeles at Largo on April 8th during the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books. I'm pretty sure that's the case. So it goes AWP directly into the Festival of Books. Is that is that how it's happening? For ticket information, visit literarydeathmatch.com. Follow the show on Twitter at LitDeathmatch. Follow Adrian Todd on Twitter at ATZuniga. The show also has a Facebook page. Thank you to Kill Rockstars as always for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to get the app. The Other People app, it's free. Get it for your iPhone, get it for your Android. Best way to listen, get it on your device. The most recent 50 episodes will be waiting for you free of charge. And then if you want to get access to the full archives, all 400 and something shows, sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app. It's as, as cheap as 75 cents a month. Great way to support the show. Would appreciate it if you did that. If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Tell me what you think. Tell me a story. Complain. I need to figure out what I'm going to say to Melissa Broder. I feel like I should prepare a little bit. Or maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I should just get up there and wing it. We'll go over some stuff. I want to put on a good show. I don't know what I'm going to wear. What do you wear? I don't have an outfit. Should I get an outfit? <laughs> this is why I do a podcast in my garage. Please remember that Thackeray died of a brain hemorrhage and that Robert Burns had nine illegitimate children. That's it for now. Thank you to Adrian Todd Zaniga. Check out Literary Deathmatch. LiteraryDeathmatch.com. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening. You know I appreciate it, and I will be back again in a week with another uh, conversation. I, I might be back sooner. There could be a special episode coming up on Sunday if I get my shit together. Which, uh, these days, who knows? But it could happen. I'm trying. Got some good shows coming up for you. I can tell you that much. Anyway, I'm excited about them. I don't know about you. I get excited about this show, believe it or not. 